If you'd like to grab a Bible, we're going to have our Bible reading next. It's on page 1183 of the Red Bibles. It's Colossians, chapter 1, starting at verse 24, page 1183. Colossians 1, starting at verse 24. Now, I rejoice in what I am suffering for you, And I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. I've become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to God's people. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you the hope of glory. He is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. I want you to know how hard I'm contending for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not met me personally. My goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love, so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding, in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments, for though I am absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit, and delight to see how disciplined you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Matt. Uh, Welcome everyone to church. It's good to be with you. My name's Prash. I'm the senior minister. Very warm welcome. If you're new visiting, joining us online, uh, it's good to have you with us. Um, I just wanted to mention um, that Sue Ellen Grellman's memorial services this Thursday at 11 a.m. in this building. So the Grumman family invite you to join them. Um, Let's give thanks for Sue Ellen's life and there'll be refreshments after the service as well. Um, As we, uh, if you've joined us after a few weeks, we're in a series on the New Testament letter called Colossians. It's written by the Apostle Paul to a little church in a backwater town called Colossae. We spent a couple of weeks there already and we're gonna spend a few more this term looking at this letter. Let me pray for us as uh, we, we embark on that. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word and pray that your Holy Spirit would apply it to our hearts and our minds. Uh, make us more like the Lord Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. Well, this, this uh, week I met with a whole bunch of faith leaders from our area with the local member. Um, it, it, it was... Uh, I was thankful for the opportunity. We were all thankful for the opportunity to kind of to hear from them and to uh, for them to hear from us, especially in our current climate. Um, I mean, those who who are a bit cynical might have assumed that there's an election coming up in March, and so it's good to hear from your constituents, isn't it? Nonetheless, it was appreci- uh, it was appreciated by everyone. I think he and us. Uh, what was interesting, though, is it was really was a cross-section of, um, of uh, faith organiser, of faith communities, uh, Christian churches, uh, Islamic groups, uh, the representatives from the Jewish temple, representatives from the Buddhist temple, 
uh, in Chatswood. Uh, there was a Scientologist there, who I'm not sure if that qualifies as a faith organisation, but um, he, he was there too. There was a full gamut. And uh, what was really interesting was how we all appreciated the opportunity and the gathering, and yet we kind of were grappling with what is the core purpose, the common purpose to all of us. What's, the common, what's, what's common to all of us? And I guess in the end, where we got to, not that we had a big debate about this, it's just as we were talking, you could sense that we were all trying to work out what's common to us. I think we all got to the point where we said, I think what's common to faith communities in our culture is that they offer care and support to people who are, who are struggling, who are down and out emotionally, financially, relationally. They're places to connect. They're, they're community service organisations. That's, that's the purpose of them. Now, it made me think as I walked away, what is the real purpose of church? What would the Bible say? What would Paul say? He's a bit, he was a bit prickly, he was a bit abrasive at times. What would he have said in that meeting? How would he have conceived of the local church? What's the purpose of the local church? It's an important question, you know, because it actually comes down, if you're thinking about its application to you, it's like, it, it, the question is, why are you here? <laughs> why are you here is, is, the, is the fundamental, deeper question that you would be asking and the answer would be on the basis of how you'd answer the question, what's the purpose of the church? I think it's relevant as we look at this morning's passage because what it, this morning in, in Colossians, Paul gets to a little moment. He's just said, I'm a servant of Christ. And then he goes into a little autobiographical moment where he, he tries to explain who he is and what the purpose is of his ministry as a servant of Christ. But I think as we read it, by implication, it is an answer to what is the purpose for ministers of God's church more broadly. And actually, I think you can extend it even more broadly. What is the purpose for each of God's people in God's church? Because actually, Paul thinks of the church not primarily as a hierarchy of him and then his leaders and then the church, but actually as all God's people together. The, the priesthood of all believers is what Peter calls it. And so actually, what is the purpose for Paul and his ministry is also relevant to us as individuals. What is the purpose of this church, of this group of people? Uh, if you were to sum it up, it's, it's really found in the second half of the passage. So chapter 2, if, you, if you've got it open in front of you, you'll see a lot of little phrases like, in order that, so that, my goal. In other words, Paul is saying in those first five verses of chapter 2, this is the reason I do everything I do. This is the reason the church exists. This is why this is our purpose. And he says here, so let me read. This is verse 2, which probably captures it. The my goal is that they, that is God's people, may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ. So he says, the goal of his ministry and therefore, the goal of God's church, ultimately, is that individuals will be encouraged in heart. The word heart in the, Old Test in the New Testament is not just emotions, or that's where we think immediately, but it is actually the whole self. It's the driving motivation and will of a person. He says, at the core, we want to see people transformed in their deepest sense, deeply encouraged and united in love. So the corporate experience as well, the, one of the goals of his ministry, the purposes of his ministry, is that there's a, there's a transformation of community. 
There's a group of people deeply united in love, knit together. But both of those things are so that ultimately God's people might have the full riches, or a better way of translating, the full assurance of the knowledge of who God is. The purpose of God's ministry, the purpose of God's ministry is that people would have full assurance. He puts it another way in verse 28, so that, that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. In other words, so that we might get everyone to the end of the race, more like Jesus, so they might complete, complete the race, get to the end. You know, think of those members of our congregation who've passed away having trusted the Lord to the end. That's the goal of Christian ministry. That's the goal of the church, is to get God's people to the end. He'd said, you might summarise like this. I've got a typo here, but work with me. The church exists to lead people to an assured relationship with God. That's the primary purpose of the church. Of course it exists to help people and relationally and uh, to, be, to be a person that helps those who are... But if you were to summarise, the primary reason that the church exists is this, to get people to an assured relationship with God. That's what Paul would say. I mean... If you, if you just if you feel like that's too strong, just go back, look at verse 28. So that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. The goal of the church is that it might lead people to an assured relationship with God. This is the primary reason that the church exists, the primary reason. And so the question then is, what does it look like to live in this community? You know, from the why comes the how, right? So what does it look like to live in this community? And I think from Paul's, you know, if Paul sees this is his goal of his ministry, this is the goal of those who lead God's church, and this is the goal of God's people when they gather together as God's people, how are they meant to live? How does Paul live? I think, in short, working hard. He labours. Look at the words that he has in this, this little hinge section of the passage, verse 29 through to verse 1. To this end, as in to that end that we've just talked about, right, presenting everyone mature in Christ, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. I want you to know how hard I am contending for you and for those at Laodicea. He repeats it twice in two verses because he wants to make clear that he pours his whole self into this task. He works hard for this. In fact, the word contend or labour is a word that uh, also kind of reflects the labour and work that um, an athlete would do in preparing for their competition. Paul talks about, you know, we sometimes feel uncomfortable about the concept of hard work and labouring in the Christian life. But Paul Paul is not uncomfortable with that at all. In fact, in 2 Timothy, he uses three different illustrations to describe this aspect of the Christian life. Labouring, he says, we're like athletes who work for a race or a competition. We're like farmers who, who work for their crop. We're like soldiers who are disciplined in their life. Paul is all using that to, to say, that's about you and how you grow yourself spiritually, right? How you do the Christian life, you labour, you contend so that you would grow. But here in this passage, Paul is saying, you do that for other people. He does it for other people. He's not 
strenuously contending with all the energy for his own sake, but for the sake of churches like the church in Colossae and Laodicea and Herapolis, which he doesn't mention here, but he mentions later, another church in that area. He's laboring for them. He's contending for them. I mean, interesting, he, doesn't, he hasn't never met them personally, but yet he's still able to labor for them. Some people think, does that mean prayer? He's praying for them. Uh, I think it's possible that he's talking about prayer, but I think there's other things. He's, he's doing a lot behind the scenes to ensure that their ministry. He's, he's encouraging Epaphras, for example, teaching. He, he's maybe having hard conversations with him to ensure that he will go back and encourage the saints in Colossae. He's, he's writing this letter in his time. This letter wouldn't have been just like you see on an email and punching out a, a letter in 20 minutes. He would, have, he, would have, he would have thought long and hard about what he wrote to them. And it's not the only letter, of course, he's written. I mean, we, have, we have a number of his letters, and there'll be many more that would have existed but were not, you know, were not um, retained. He's working very hard for this. I think this is really interesting because in our, in our church, we have some people who work very hard. They contend, they strenuously contend for the spiritual maturity of other people. And if that's you, I, I just want you to be encouraged because that's actually the hallmark of, of God's people. They work hard for one another, work hard that they might grow into, into more mature into Christ. There's, I mean, the reality is, though, with most churches, that's a minority of people. There's, a, there's an adage that goes around in ministry teams. 20% of the people do 80% of the work in a church life. I've never crunched the numbers in our church. How do you do that? You know, there's things that you're doing which I can't see. But if the number is anywhere near reality, there's a lot of people for whom they've not heard this, that this is the shape of God's people together for the sake of maturity in Christ. People working together, working hard, laboring. I, I think as we think about that, I think there's two challenges, though, that we need to, we need to we need to hear. There's two challenges to what Paul's saying. The first challenge is in terms of the communal nature of it. Spirituality in our culture is very much a private experience. In fact, at our meeting, one person got up and said, uh, during the week, one person got up and said, we fundamentally believe that what you believe is true is true. I thought, that is, just, that is the description of spirituality. You know, where it is centred in the individual and what they think is true. There's lots of problems with that statement, but it is, it is really helpful to hear how most people think. And we think, even as Christians, we do think, I think, deep down, that we could just do it alone. We could do it alone. We could read the Bible regularly and pray regularly, and that would be okay. But Paul is, is describing a totally different dynamic to spiritual growth and to growth into maturity in Christ. Look what he says in verse 24. You might have it in front of you or it's here on the screen. First verse of this section, he says, Now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you. And then he'll go on to say, uh, And I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regards to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. He's saying, I suffer for you. We think, we, you know, we, we do have a, we, some people have a sense of spirituality which is, I suffer for me. 
the more I suffer, the more I grow. And that's not completely incorrect. That, that is a means. But here, what Paul is saying is, I suffer for you. I work hard, not so that I would grow spiritually, but so you would grow spiritually. So you would, you would move in maturity towards Christ. There's that curious phrase, I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regards to Christ's afflictions. That's one of the most intriguing passages in the whole of the New Testament. Uh, there's plenty written on it. What's Paul saying? Well, in short, I don't really know. But I, think, I, I can tell you what he's not saying. He's not saying that somehow what Jesus did on the cross is lacking and therefore Paul needs to do a little bit more to ensure that we're saved. He's not saying that because in the next chapter he will talk about how all the enemies of God were nailed to the cross. Right? Also, he's using the word afflictions, not cross or sufferings, which is his normal way of talking about Jesus' death for us. I think perhaps, and this is what a, a few commentators would lean towards, I think perhaps what he's actually saying is that Paul, by suffering for them, is an encouragement for them. Like, that, in a way that Jesus can't be at that point because he's now ascended and seated at the right hand of God, only to return again. You know, if we did have Jesus in front of us and we could see him actively suffering for us right here and right now, that would be, that would be an additional encouragement, wouldn't it, apart from the truth of what he did for us on the cross. But Christ, by virtue of ascending, is, is not able to do that. In fact, the word lacking is used in Philippians to talk about um, the Philippians lacking something in their gift to Paul, and what he means there is simply they just weren't there. They're physically not present, so therefore not able to minister to him. So in a sense, Jesus, but Jesus resolves that tension by sending Paul to suffer for the Colossians and for the others. Jesus sends us to resolve that tension by suffering and working hard for other people. For the sake of his body. You see, this view of growth is in contrast to what I'd call the Apple Fitness vision of spirituality. You know what Apple Fitness is? It's, it's this thing that's developed over the course of the pandemic where you don't need to go to a gym anymore because you just have an application on your phone, you put it on your TV, and you do your workout, or you've got your Peloton bike, and there you are, it's the middle of the afternoon, there's no one there, and you're steaming up the room, you're doing 10Ks through the Alps, and you're, you're getting fit, right? You don't need anyone else anymore. You can do it on your time, in your space. It's your agenda. That's fine. That's fine. It's just physical fitness. Do what you want. Spirituality doesn't work like that. You can't just say, oh, I'm just going to read the Bible and pray in the quietness of my house, and that'll be sufficient. I mean, there is a place for that. But here is the picture that, God, that Paul is presenting. He's saying, it is. You need me to do this, and I willingly and joyfully do it. Suffer for you. Make up for what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. I fill the gap willingly. And so it is with us. You cannot do it alone. You cannot do it alone. As much as you want to believe that. You want to believe, of course, because it suits your agenda. It suits our timetable. We're so busy. It helps if we can just do spirituality on our own timetable. Unfortunately, you can't. You can't. The means of growth is God's people serving you 
and you serving them. God's people working together. That's the first challenge. It, it, it speaks towards this tendency in our hearts to privatise our faith. I think the second challenge, though, comes, comes at the question of hard work and how that relates to this gospel of grace. Where, how do we balance these two things? It's what I call the hospital for sinners fallacy. Ever heard someone say the church is a hospital for sinners? It's true, it is. And sometimes when people use it, it's totally appropriate because what they're describing is that, you know, we are all sinners, we all need the healing work of God in our life. We all, I mean, that's what the church exists for, right? To make us mature in Christ, to present, give us an assured relationship with God, to point us to the gospel. But that doesn't mean that we become passive recipients of it. I think sometimes when we hear that phrase, hospital for sinners, it means that we think we're all just kind of propped up in beds and a nurse comes to each of our beds with, you know, our apple juice and bland sandwich and custard. And we just receive that. And so that just is the process. That's just the life of a Christian, to passively receive grace. But that's not it. It's not it. Because Paul constantly says, he constantly encourages people to labour. And so he says this. He says this in Ephesians 2. There's a famous passage about the grace of God, like the freedom of God's grace. For it is by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. Very clear. It's a gift of God. You've not earned it. Not by works, in case you thought you'd earned it. So that no one can boast, in case you thought you'd earned it. Very clear. This is grace. Ah, For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works. To do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. We're not saved to slumber. We're saved to serve. This is the dynamic of the Christian life. So when we say that the heart of God's people, that what it looks like to live in community is to work hard for one another's spiritual maturity, that completely lines up with what Paul is saying elsewhere about this gospel of grace. It is not passive reception of grace, but rather you are saved to serve others. You're saved to serve others. You're saved to invest in others, to contend for others, to struggle for others, to long for others' spiritual maturity. Maybe you heard this, C.S. Lewis says, I didn't go to religion to make me happy. I always knew a bottle of port would do that. If you want a religion to make you feel really comfortable, I certainly don't recommend Christianity. And he's right on many levels. Christianity, it points out your failings. <laughs> it points out your need but it also calls you to a great commission. You know, when Paul was met on the road to Damascus, Jesus meets him in a flash, right? Before he meets him, he goes to Ananias. He says, go to Ananias. As he Paul is on his way to Ananias, God prepares, Jesus prepares Ananias for it. He says, you're going to meet Paul, whom I have called to suffer great things for my gospel. Now, Paul receives the gospel in spite of being in spite of being a great, a great traitor to the gospel. I mean, he murdered Christians. He oversaw the murder of Christians, and yet God shows his grace to him. But not so that he might just receive it passively, but that he might serve God actively and to great cost to fill up, to fill up 
what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Now, the challenge for us is how do we, how do we reorient ourselves? How do, we, how do we jolt ourselves out of our tendency to comfort, right? Because we do, do, I think the groove that we have in our life means that when, even when we come here, we do, many of us, have a tendency just to kind of slot back into being a passive member of the community of God. Well, I think the answer is throughout this passage. It's littered. There's little hints at what kind of uh, runs deep in Paul's veins, the motivation for him. And you can find that there's two words, two words starting with P. It's the presence of Christ and the promises of Christ. Look at what Paul says here in verse 29. Remember, to this end I strenuously contend, more though, with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. The reason Paul can labour like he labours, can contend and work so hard for God's people at great cost to himself is because he's not labouring on the basis of his own energy and strength, but on the energy and strength that God gives him, that Christ gives him by being in him, by dwelling in him, by being with him. Now remember who Jesus is because last week's passage was all about the supremacy of Christ. That Christ is over and above all things, and all things exist for him and are sustained by him. And Paul, with that picture of Jesus in his mind, says, that man, Jesus Christ, is with me, and it is his power that strengthens me. It's his power that strengthens me. And I tell you, actually, the experience of many people who labor for the gospel is when you're in the midst of that labor, you experience the power of God. The power of God. During the week, I teach scripture with a, with a guy called Ian. He's a member of our early morning service. Ian and I take year two and year three. Now, year two, it's a pretty good class. It's got my daughter in it, not because she's in it. That's good. It's got 25 kids and there's 24 seats. So all the kids have a seat, generally. Um, and they're year two and they're a bit more deferential and listen, but they are also got great questions. It's a great class. I then take year three. That is a dog's breakfast. I have 37 kids and 20 seats, uh, and we're all jammed in. It's like one of those um, multi-sensory learning rooms, so there's whiteboard desks with whiteboard markers on the desk. Um, so th- th- there's pictures everywhere, there's dividers which have to be moved, and also, look, it's, they're starting to get that stage where some of them don't want to be in scripture anymore. It's a, it's a very challenging class. We'll finish year two, we'll say, oh, that went pretty well. But then we'll kind of take a deep breath, like we're going under for two and a half minutes and hoping that we'll come back up again and see the light. And we get through that class, and Ian and I, you know, we start the class, let's pray, take a deep breath. We teach the class. At the end of it, how many times we say to each other, that was pretty good, actually. That, that kid really got it this week. It's a real thrill. It's a real thrill when some kid just gets something, you know. Oh, that kid listened today. Oh, Harry wasn't spending the whole time drawing on the whiteboard desk. Um, these are little moments where you just experience the joy of working together. But even more than that, sometimes when you're working together, you see God do extraordinary things. I want to read to you what one of our scripture teachers sent to Pippi um, last year. They were, they're teaching a class together, and this is what they wrote. They said, I thank God for the privilege of being there to see him at work. From where I was at the back of the room, watching you explain the gospel so simply and powerfully, hearing the desperation from those girls, 
feeling the mood shift with kids right round the room, giving your words their attention. The way they were respectful and not restless during the prayer, it felt like we were living in acts. Every now and then, when you contend for the gospel, the power of God shines out like shook foil. It just, it just bursts out in these moments. You don't know exactly when it'll happen, but it does. Because you are not contending just with your own energy, but with the power which Christ works in you. That is the promise. That is the promise. That Christ is with you. But see what else is in the promise. The second word, P, promise. I used promise there in the wrong way. But the presence of Christ, the promise of Christ. He says, the other thing that will shake us out of this comfort zone is when we see what we are proclaiming. It's the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ, he says in verse 3, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. The gospel. The gospel is the most precious thing you have to offer anyone because all the wisdom and knowledge is found in Christ the gospel is the thing that makes sense of the word intellectually it meets your intellectual needs maybe you've heard C.S. Lewis say this um, he says I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen not only because I see it but because by it I see everything else The gospel of Jesus Christ is what makes sense of the world. It explains why you are what you are and where you're going and why the world is. The gospel is the answer to your intellectual queries. The gospel is the answer to your emotional needs. It tells you of the deep love of God offered to you in spite of your failings. The gospel is the solution to your relational needs. It tells you that you're loved by God. That you can be a child of God. The gospel is the answer to your physical needs. The gospel is the word of resurrection to a body that's failing. It says there is something better, and in the twinkling of an eye, you will be transformed on that last day. And you will stand before the Lord Jesus in all the glory that He has appointed you. You'll be clothed with those robes of righteousness. And the gospel is the spiritual need that answer your spiritual need, which says that God is willing to reconcile with you despite your sin because of Christ. This is the gospel. When I sit in the interfaith forum, as great as it is, I can confidently say this. We offer something that none of them can offer, not because because I I have got some special knowledge, but because in Christ, God has given us the answer to the deepest needs, the deepest needs of every person. This is what the church, this is why the church has to center on the gospel. This is why it's the most important thing we do. This is not just as an organization, but as God's people to one another. This is why we labor hard. This is why we pour all of our energy into it. This is why we make it number one, because it answers everything everything you need, everything your family needs, everything your neighbor needs. It answers it. Not just in a cursory way, not in a piecemeal way, but in a transformative way so that you and I see the world as it really is, see ourselves as it really is, and more important, see God as he really is. This is the gospel. This is the thing that Paul proclaims, and it is in Christ. 
in whom all of these things are hidden. And so Christ is the one he proclaims. My hope is that that's the kind of church we want to labor for this. This is what we want to spend out, not just as a, like I say, not just as an organization, but as God's people. You know, this week is uh, our Taste of Life event. Maybe you've been umming and ahhing about the hard conversation, the awkward phone call. Do it! Do it, because in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Don't you want that person to have that? Don't you want that? I think we do deep down. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the Lord Jesus, in whom are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. We thank you that you give us this gift despite ourselves, in spite of our failings. You offer it to us graciously, kindly. Lord, would you, would you fill our hearts with deep appreciation and deep hope in response to this, that our lives would be given to this task and that we as your people would labour, would contend, would strenuously work that people might be presented before you mature in Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.